0: John in the New Testament, we'll be putting the passages of Scripture up. I actually ran out of the service during prayer because I forgot to send them uh, to the guys up there, so hopefully Scripture will be there eventually. So we've been making our way through the Bible, uh, telling the story of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the universe, and He calls it good. He enjoys it. He then creates man and woman, and He calls them very good. He then rests. And then sometime after that, we don't really know how long, man and woman decide, you know what, we know what's best for us. And so they take things into their own hands and they declare, we know what is good and evil. And because of that, sin enters the world, brokenness enters the world, and then God goes looking for them. He goes looking for them, not because he's lost them. He's not like, oh, I created the universe, but I can't find Adam. He knows where he is. And he said, Adam, where are you? And they end up dropping promises on Adam and Eve and curses. And one of the promises is, you will have a seed, a child. And this child will crush the head of the serpent, which you should have done, Adam. And that serpent will strike at your heel. Years later, a man named Abram is chosen by God. And God makes promises to him, unilateral promises to him. And swears on himself that even if Abram becomes Abraham doesn't fulfill his covenant with God, God will take on the curses himself. And so for hundreds of years, now the people of God grow in, in Egypt and up out comes Moses, and Moses comes and rescues, redeems. Well, Moses doesn't do it, but he's the means by which this happens, and they come out. They go in the wilderness. They're given a law. They're given a way to relate to God on a national level. They're taught a way to deal with sin so they can interact with one another, and so a law is created, and eventually they, they get into the land that is promised to Abraham, and then a king comes, and in about 1000 B.C., God creates or gives a promise that there will be a dynasty forever in the line of David. And yet, if you read the story, you're like within two generations, it seems to be over. And God's people are being exiled out out of the land and taken out of the land. And they begin to ask all these prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where where are the promises of God? I thought he, he promised us these things. And then into that situation. Rome comes in, takes over the, the world, and Jerusalem is occupied, and then here comes the, the baby Jesus born in a manger, the incarnation of God. God comes to rescue his people. So we have been focusing on the story, and now we come to one of the most beloved passages in the New Testament. I heard even some, mm-hmm, like the like white church amen, mm, you know, almost, <laughs> almost <laughs> clapping. Uh, We come to one of the most beloved passages in the New Testament. Oh, that reminds me. The prayer meeting is going to be led by the international students, which you're not going to be able to do mm, uh, type of amens. It's going to be participatory, and that's all they've told us. Uh, Okay, back, back to John 3. So here comes a religious man, a good man, a seeking man, under the cover of night to ask Jesus questions, and Jesus just drills him. And out of this chapter, we get the doctrine of new birth. We get the doctrine of regeneration, which you can write in the, in the side if you want. Just th- These are kind of important. And so we have all these events in history, right? Big promises, big obligations, big commitments to you're going to be blessed, the nations, all the children of Abraham, big promises through Moses, big promises through David. But then how, how does this actually, uh, you know, kind of come to its... Like, how does it affect us? That's what John 3 is. John 3 is, okay, all these things keep happening. God keeps redeeming his people and making promises. And they make them at a national level. And he makes, you know, he's going to rescue all these people. Well, what about each individual? That's what John 3 is about. It's about you. It's about me. Okay, let's try this. A late walk at night. Now, Nicodemus isn't your average person. Here's his bio, Verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, oh, thank you guys, uh, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's a Pharisee, which means he's legit, he's, he's pretty religious, he's a teacher, so in verse 10, he's actually called Israel's teacher. He's, he has a, he's essentially PhD, top religious scholar, he's part of the Sanhedrin, so he's part of the ruling religious group, he's the best of the best. He's old, can't be part of the Sanhedrin unless you're old, and he's rich, and so the miracle of chapter 2, changing water into wine, which I'd have some questions about that too, leads him to find Jesus at night and say, hey, Jesus, I have some questions. Now, he comes at night, and you know preachers, they like to conjecture uh, about a lot of things. And one of the, one of the things you've got to ask is, okay, why is he coming at night? Why isn't this out in the open like in other places? And people have a guess. Some, some guess this. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And you know, you might know someone like this. Uh, they're seeking, they have questions, but they know they're asking the person they thought was crazy two weeks ago. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I've, I saw this a lot with Muslims. Um, Muslims had questions, but they were afraid. And they're afraid to go to the Christians and be seen with Christians. That's why you look at online services and there's like 10,000 people watching them and from Iran or something. You're like, where are all these people from? Well, they're people and mullahs and all these things hiding out because they don't want to be known to be asking questions. I saw this in the, the Middle East. My friend was, had, had his church in a hotel. And there were people who, it was illegal to convert and illegal to you know, become a Christian. And they would stand outside the room pretending to be listening to music with headphones, but they were off, and they were listening to the service. Is that what Nicodemus is? Oh, those are great stories, but I don't think so. John is latent with symbolism, and in his gospel, darkness is always, without fail, every single time, symbolic for spiritual darkness. For blindness, for example, John 11. There's a couple places. Here's one. Jesus answered them, are, you, are there not 12 hours in the day? This is all symbolism. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. And when a person walks in the night, they stumble, and they have no light. See, that's symbolic. Symbolic for spiritual darkness. So it could be a scared seeker. That could be Nicodemus. It's not wrong. It's just probably wrong. More likely, it's that John, at the front end of this story, wants to say Nicodemus is blind." Nicodemus can't see. And you see that because of how Jesus is greeted by him. Verse two. Rabbi, you know that you're a te- you, you know you're a teacher, and who, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're performing if you were not from God and God was not with him. Notice the word "we." you ever talk to someone uh, and you're only talking about yourself and use the word "we?" I mean, I hope not. Uh, who, who is he referring to? I think what's probably happened is the Sanhedrin has heard about this itinerant Jesus. They know the miracle is legit. And this is early on, so no one's trying to kill Jesus yet. And he's coming up to him and saying, I know you're a teacher. Obviously, you're from God. I need to talk to you about what's going on. And Jesus responds, I truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, verse 3, unless they are born again. What a weird way to respond. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you ask them a question and they say something totally opposite, husband and wives, you know what I'm talking about? Like you just, someone says something to you and they say the opposite. And so when I read Jesus' response, I go, Jesus, did you hear him? Nicodemus just said, I know you are a teacher. You have performed miracles. You must be from God. You do not see the kingdom of God unless you are truly born again. What is that? Well, what does born again mean first? Well... Uh, In our culture, over the last 40 years, that word has meant a lot of things. And it's mostly a mocking term, right? It's uh, super who are people who are uh, hyper-emotional, hyper-religious, or they are Republican conservative voters, the born-again class. You can count on them to vote for whoever. Or they're the people who went to like a drug rehab, and they had some sort of miraculous change of life and people say, well that person's born again. You see it in movies sometimes. Things are born again, things are are renewed, things are redeemed. But mostly it's a term to mock us. Reminds me of the term in Romania where the Orthodox Church began calling the Baptists the repenters. I was like, that's a great term. But for them it was a mocking term. And so our culture has taken a word that Jesus Requires of us and now mocks us with it. What's remarkable about this whole thing is that Nicodemus isn't someone out of a drug rehab. He's a religious leader. He's, He's not someone who needs moral teaching. He is the moral teacher. He's someone who follows the law of Moses. Not only does he follow the law of Moses, but he follows the laws that he places on top of the law of Moses so he doesn't break the law of Moses. He is serious. He wants to honor God. He is a traditional person. He is a conservative person. So being born a bit again cannot mean get some religious, follow the rules. This guy's life is fine. This guy has everything you would want in a faithful Jewish follower. And yet John throws the symbol of darkness on him. Nicodemus comes to him. He tells Jesus who he thinks he is. And Jesus says, You don't see anything, Nicodemus. That's what this is. Nicodemus, you do not see the kingdom of God. He is challenging Nicodemus's morality. He's challenging his resume. He's challenging his law-keeping. I mean, we we are saying that this is the most religious person that Jesus is going to interact with at this length. And you read the Gospels, and what do you see? You see a demon-possessed person. You go, that person needs to be saved. You guys know the person, right? Like, you see the person walk in your church, and you're like, that person definitely needs Jesus. Or you see the murderers. You see the sexually immoral. You see the self-righteous. You see the confused. And we, just, and we see this in the gospel, and you go, wow, that person really needs the Lord. But here comes Jesus to the moral, ethical, law-following religious leader and says, you don't see anything. You must be born again nothing counts, Nicodemus. That would be shocking to hear, I think. Uh, For Nicodemus, it'd be shocking for, I think, anybody to hear. Nicodemus sees uh, the kingdom as something that happens in the future, right? Like I'm going to experience the kingdom of God in the resurrection. And and Jesus talks about it that way in some places, like Matthew 19, where he speaks about the renewal of all things, and that's when he's coming back and he's going to renew all things and the dawning of the kingdom, and it's the kind of language Nicodemus can get behind. But Paul, in his letter to Titus, just towards the end of of the Bible, Paul uses the same kind of phraseology. Let me read it for you. It'll be on the screen. He saves us. Not because of the righteous thing we've done, but because of his mercy. Now, here's the wording again. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Spirit. So Jesus uses this renewal language for the coming of the kingdom, the seeing the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. And now he takes all that language that is out in the future, the kingdom of God that you can see, and He all the power that will renew all of creation, and he moves it into one singular event with an individual that same power, you must be born again. You hear it, rebirth, renewal, new birth. And Jesus is saying, you have to start over. That is the whole power that will renew the entire universe has to actually also come to you, the person, the individual. And that, I think that's hard for religious people. I mean, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 21. Uh, He's talking to the religious leaders when he says to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why is that? It's because people whose lives are messed up and they know they're messed up, when they hear, you can be reborn, you can be renewed, you can be cleansed, they go... Yes, sign me up. And don't we all have that in some sense? Like you think back and the older you get, the more you think back and we call them regrets. But sometimes you go, I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I could go back and do that. I wish I had a redo. But to tell a religious moral teacher You too must be born again. So Nicodemus says to him, impossible. How could this even happen? And then Jesus goes down even harder. Verse 5, I truly tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Now, verse 5 has led to some discussion. Uh, If you've come out of Catholic, maybe even some Lutheran traditions, you read this. Okay, verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. What is that? Now, some commentators that are wrong think that this is natural birth, and they are, (laughs) natural birth and spirit. I'm pretty generous towards people, but not this. Uh, Think that this is natural birth, you're born once, and then you're born spirit, spirit baptism. Some people say, well, this is uh, conversion and actual baptism, and if you are not baptized by water, you are not born again. That's what people will argue. I'm just going to show you, if you look at John 3, 3, and John three five, can you actually show them? Oh yeah, perfect. Look, look how close these are. Verse three: No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Verse five: No one can enter. So there's only one word difference there: the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. So whatever water and spirit is, born again is is born again is as well. Now let me show you where the language comes from. It comes from Ezekiel. So Nicodemus knows the Old Testament. <laughs> Jesus is going to use the Old Testament to describe in a parallel what being born again is. Here's, here's Ezekiel 36. Just hear the words. Tell me if you hear the same things. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep your law. What is that? that water is a symbol for cleansing. And Jesus is ripping this out of Ezekiel 36 and saying, hey, Nicodemus, Ezekiel 36 is right now. And then in Ezekiel 37, the famous passage with the dry bones, what comes and kicks them up? Wind. And what does Jesus say now in John 3? The spirit kind of blows wherever it wants, like the wind. This is transformation. This is not getting your life in order. This isn't doing what your parents taught you. This is radical reformation. This is new birth, sprinkle clean with waters, cleanse from impurities, new heart, new spirit, moved to follow God. The Apostle Paul calls this the new self. I mean, who wouldn't want this? And the answer is, we wouldn't. I've been a Christian 20 years based on the songs I find myself recommending myself to God all the time. (laughs) Look, God, my talent that you gave me, isn't it amazing? (laughs) It's always religious people with morality that have the hardest time swallowing the pill of the new birth. Listen, the most famous example I know of is from the 1700s. Um, The Countess of Huntington becomes a Christian And she begins to share the gospel with the upper echelons of England. And one person who did not like it was the Duchess of Buckingham. And her letter survives today, poor soul. This is what she writes. I thank your ladyship for the information on the Methodist preaching. So I think she's talking about Charles Wesley. Their doctrines are strongly tinctured with impertinence toward their superiors. It's monstrous. This is the important part to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches who crawl the earth. Hmm. That was a good amen. (laughs) (laughs) There it is in a nutshell, right? I'm not as bad as them. And so Jesus is coming to Nicodemus who, this is what he could say. I'm not as bad as them. So how does this birth happen? happen? So they're walking in the night. Jesus says you must be born again. How does this happen? There's two terms here, regeneration, new birth. Verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from. So this is Ezekiel 37 language. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Let me just wade into something that is deep waters in Christian theology, and you can go do this later, uh, study this later. This seems to be saying that God has to move on us first before we can respond to him. The Spirit of God acts on a person, and he does on whoever he pleases. It happens whenever he wants. That seems to be what is making sense of verse 8. I mean, I was there for the birth of my children. My children did not decide to be born. They were born. How does the new birth happen? The spirit goes wherever it wants, and then people are born. It just makes sense to me, because how many times, maybe Christians in this room, have you shared the gospel with someone one week, and it's like they're staring blankly at you. Some of you might be doing that to me right now. And then the next week, you share the same thing and they go, why haven't you told me this? What is that? Why do revivals happen and then not and then happen and then not? Are people praying less? Maybe. And yet, look at what we must do. So God does whatever he wants. He seems to regenerate us first is what is what the theological term is, and then we respond in faith. But look at verse 14. We have to do something. Just as Moses lifted up the snake of the serpent, so this is how the new birth happens, in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Okay, Jesus drops Numbers 21. Have you ever dropped Numbers 21 in an evangelistic setting? Probably not. But if if you are sharing the gospel with someone who knows the Old Testament, let me drop a story on you, Nicodemus. God's people in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, you can look it up later, have sinned. God is angry, and he sends venomous snakes into their midst. And the venom is supposed to represent the sin that is killing them. And so people are dying. The people go to Moses and say, Moses, we've done something wrong. Yes, you have people. And so Moses goes to God, and God says, I want you to make a bronze serpent, the image of the thing that is killing my people, and put it on a pole, and anyone who looks at that pole will be saved. And now Jesus says to Nicodemus, I am the bronze serpent, look to me. You know, one of the most well-known preachers, I think every pastor who preaches this, Numbers 21 tells this story because it just fits so perfectly. One of the most well-known preachers of history of Britain is Charles Spurgeon. I mean, he was quite a guy. I mean, he's the only preacher I know that has a cigar named after him. (laughs) And I thought, maybe Dan Collins one day, but I don't know. I, I digress. Okay, he's not here. I can say that. He, he comes to Christ, though, as a young man because he can't get to his normal church because of a massive snowstorm. And then the church he does get to, the pastor's not there. And so they, a layperson is preaching. So how many of you have been to the church where the pastor gets sick? And there's no other pastors. And then some layperson just goes, okay, you go up and say a few words. Well, this guy went up and said a few words to the four or five people who were in the church. And Spurgeon talks about him kind of droning on, kind of running out of things to say. And then Spurgeon tells the story this way. And then he turned to me and he said, young man, you look miserable. Spurgeon wrote, I did look miserable, but I've not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance. You like imagine dear in one day. I need a name that is no one in this room. Oh, listen, John, you look terrible today. Sorry, all the Johns went, ah. <laughs> the man said, and you will be miserable. Miserable all the way to life and death if you don't obey the text. And in this moment, you must obey now and you will be saved. And then Spurgeon says as only a Methodist could. He said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And then this is how he recounts it. I saw at once the salvation. I know not what else he said. Remember, ever been in a sermon where something hits you and you blank? Some of you, I know it. I see it in your face. I was so possessed with this one thought. Like as when the serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Do you hear that? I was trying to do 50 things. What is it? That is the person who says, I need to get my life in order first, and then I'm going to come to God second. And essentially, I'm going to control God by bringing him the things that I've done and saying, now do something for me. And Spurgeon says, all you have to do is look. That's the new birth. That's a lot different from trying to prove yourself to God. That's a lot different from what the Puritans called recommending yourself to God. You know what that means, right? It means that not only do you have to repent of the bad things you've done, and everyone here, you know, you've got, you may have some guilt, and you're like, I, I've done some stuff, and the stuff I've done, I, I understand. and I, I, You have a sense of right and wrong, probably, in some sense. But you don't really have to repent of that. You have to repent of the good things you've done in order to get God's approval. It's not only the bad things, it's the good things too. Because God is commanding you to do one thing. Look, 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 that's it. So what is Nicodemus' issue on the front end? He's relating to Jesus wrong. Now, I, I used to travel in a lot internationally, and I, I've got two or three videos of this where I would come home and my children would mug me. And they'd dad 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 you're home dad. Dad, it's amazing. Hugs and Amy's like, "I'm going to leave for 30 minutes. I'll be back." You know. And and dad dad dad. I'd never Could you imagine if I came home and they'd miss me so dearly and they would go, "Teacher, I need help with my science project. You're a teacher, right?" Mr. Carlson, welcome home. Oh. That's right. <laughs> Man, I got gotcha. you. Wow. I'm lost now. Okay. (laughs) Am I a teacher? Yes. Am I Mr. Carlson? Yes. But is that how my children should relate to me? No. They should be calling me daddy, father. Nicodemus has it wrong. And Jesus is trying to get him off of saying, oh, you're a moral teacher. You're a miracle worker. And Jesus is saying, you don't see anything. I'm the one who's going to be lifted up. I'm the savior. How are you relating to him? Even as I'm speaking, how are you relating to Jesus? How are you actually interacting with him as your teacher? I mean, you've got some morality lessons here. Take it home, and I'll try to do two or three things this week. Might be good. Or is he the one who's lifted up, who all you have to do is look? That's it. Look. All right. Now God's love. How is Jesus lifted up? The story ends. John drops into his own commentary. So if you notice in your Bibles, if you have the red letter editions where it's Jesus speaking, John 3.16 is not Jesus speaking. It's John's commentary on the story of Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I've I've given you some questions to work through in the bulletin. I'll just say this. I read a little small book this week in preparation for this called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Really easy to read, pretty short. Uh, It's difficult because of us. It's difficult because I'm guessing if I said to someone, I want to introduce you to the sovereign, righteous judge of the universe who is holy, everyone would be like, whoa, that's kind of intense. But I said if I said I want to introduce you to the God of love and be like amazing. What is that? It's that we have our definitions of love and we bring them to the Bible and then we say God is love and the definition of love is what our culture has told us love is. So love is you have to accept me as I am and I say I am or you don't love me I and mean, we get it's been radicalized of course but we all do that in some sense. Or love is, you know, the first time I held my wife's hand and the sweaty palms and the electrical current going through my body and I'm like, oh, gosh, oh, my goodness, I must, something's happening here. And now that I don't have that, do do we not love each other anymore? Is it the feeling? Or maybe love's the hallmark Christmas movies that I hate and the sentimentality. You, You see it in worship songs where you could sing worship songs to your boyfriend or girlfriend and you wouldn't even know the difference. The Gospel of John talks a lot about love. God is love is not the complete statement of everything about God. I mean, even, this, even in the passage here, God is threatening judgment on people as he says, for God so loved the world. This is the God who exiled his people. This is the God who sent venomous snakes. John knows, John just dropped the venomous snake story a couple verses before this. This is the God who flooded the world. I'll just say the Gospel of John talks a lot about the love the Father has for the Son, the love the Son has for the Father. Here's one place, John 3. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. That is, the Father and Son have this love where no sin has to be overcome. Think about that. The the, the love is not strained, stretched, tested. They're not sinning against one another. There's There's no forgiveness happening between the Father and the Son. But then God loves the world. This is the only place in Scripture where it says this. God loves the world. And God doesn't love the world because it's great. In fact, it's so bad. Christians are told by John in one of his letters later, don't love the world. So you've got John, God so loved the world, and then you've got John later to the Christians, don't love the world. Why? Because when we love the world, we participate in it. And when God loves the world, he gives his son for them. Everything that needs to be redeemed, everything that is broken. What does Luther say? uh, Sinners are attractive not because they're lovely, but because they're loved. That's close enough. The world is the place where everything needs redemption. And so Jesus Speaks later, you know, I'm the resurrection life. I'm going to give you eternal life. And he's talking to a grieving sister, Martha. And he's not saying, hey, Martha, believe in the resurrection. He's saying, look at me. I'm the resurrection. Look at me. I am life. Look at me. I am the son who has been given for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The son is offered even to Nicodemus. If Nicodemus can just see him. So, question: What happens now when the new birth happens? So, Jesus talking about this born again experience. What happens? Well, the person uh, eyes awaken. They they become awake to a new reality. They see the kingdom of God. You know, I used to hear a lot of. If you're over, let's just say fifty, and you were in campus ministry, I, I know your testimony it goes like this: I grew up in church, and I never heard the gospel and then i went to campus crusade for christ or some other ministry and i or i went to this church and i heard the gospel and i was saved it could be something like that and that could be true but what could also be true is no they were sharing the gospel with you the whole time and you didn't hear it you were spiritually blind i hear this all the time i'm a christian I go to church, and then just something happened to me. I was made alive. It's the same preacher, same people, same messages, same Bible. One week, I'm being dragged here by my boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or because I'm lonely and I need some friends. I'm worshiping. It's monotonous. I just kind of lip the words, and this is stupid. What am I doing this afternoon? And then all of a sudden, something happened, And, and you're just like, I don't know what it was. And last week it was dumb, and this week it's amazing. I'll just tell you personally, uh, when I was a freshman in college, someone gave me the book, uh, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. I read a couple pages like, this is the dumbest book I have ever read. Why would anyone read it? A few years later, someone said, you should read this book, Knowledge of the Holy. I start reading it. This is the greatest book I have ever read in the history of Christian books to this point. And I love the testimony of new believers, right? They, they, they don't even know what hit them. And if they, a lot of them are like me. They start inserting themselves in the story because they can't even explain exactly what happened. And we're rejoicing and we're clapping. or saying, this is amazing. God has done it. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, they don't even know the half of it. They don't know what's even happened to them, how God has kind of found them. They're like, I found God. You're like, no, he found you. John Wesley called it A Heart Strangely Warmed. People say, you know, it's like the Matrix. You take the pill, you get unplugged, you're like, wow, the lights are on. One of my wife's first job out of grad school was working at a Catholic uh, school. And she met one of the nuns there. And the nun pulled her aside and said, I became a Christian. She'd been a nun for years. And now she's like, I just became a Christian. I'm born again. A Heart Strangely Warmed and your loves, your heart shift, and your life changes. You're saved by faith alone. You're looking at Jesus, but that faith trails with a whole life transformation. Now, a little addendum. Some of that transformation takes time, and you're like, I'm struggling. Am Am I born again? Yes, of course. It takes time, but let's just look at Nicodemus, okay? So John 3, asking Jesus questions. John 7, Nicodemus is defending Jesus. And then at the end of the gospel, here's something beautiful. John 19, I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen. This is after Jesus died. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he feared the leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus' at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds, taking Jesus' body The two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, as was accordance to Jewish custom. Jesus has been executed by the ruling Sanhedrin that Nicodemus is a part of. This is a risk for Nicodemus. Not only that, he's doing the job that was only allotted to slaves and women, taking care of the body of dead people. And here comes the elite, rich, ruling, moral leader, and tenderly caring for the Savior. Nicodemus was born again. Now, as we close, I just want to apply this all in Paul's words in Romans 8. Paul writes that those who have experienced the new birth, you can just leave it up there, have something that's happened to them. And as they experience life and go through things, Paul asks the question, Should anything separate us from this love? Now, this is not bumper sticker promises. You know, the longer I'm the pastor here, the more I know of things that go on in people's lives. And listen, the people are dying in this room, terminal illness. People will not be here in a couple months that are in this room right now. You have buried friends. You have buried spouses. You've buried parents. Some of you in this room, I see you, have chronic pain. You barely got here this morning. Some of you young moms are lonely. You are exhausted. You can barely speak sentences. Some of you are alone. Some of you wish you would die. Some of you have adult children who are seemingly worthless. And I hate churches that tell you, you know, just have enough faith to get out of that. What an awful thing. I was a pastor. First person who I died when I was a pastor was a woman who asked me to come and bring healing oil. Because if God loved her, God would heal her. Stage four, cancer, 88 years old. And she couldn't fathom the fact that she was dying. And I remember telling her, you're you're going to Jesus now. Go. Paul is not some theologian divorced from this. That's why in verse 38, he says, I am convinced. And if you meet people in this room who are going through stuff, they'll say, I am convinced. And here's the list, that neither death nor life, that is, death is real, and that is not separating us from God's love. And that this life is real, and it can crush you, and it's not gonna separate you from his love. That neither angels or demons, that is, the demonic world, is never going to separate you from the love of God. Neither present or future, what's that? That's everything that is today that crushes you that will, will not separate you from the love of God. And everything in the future that you don't know about yet, and let's be honest, we're all one phone call away from our lives completely melting and falling apart. He says, in the future, when that phone call comes, you will not be separated from the love of God. Powers, height, depth, and anything else in creation. That's, a, that's Paul's way of saying, and everything else. <laughs> not even you. You. You can't separate yourself from the love of God. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. You want the application of the new birth? It's Romans 8. You will never be separated from what God has done in your life, and he will always be there. Even when the adult kids are worthless and terminal illness comes and the phone call comes this week and your your life deteriorates and the money falls apart and everything else in the future